Father, we all have something in common here tonight, and simply put, we all need your wisdom. We're all facing different situations. We're all facing situations that require discernment, that require uh, a measured response. We are facing decisions, some small, some life-changing, some concerning a transition or a job or a family relationship, or it could be a thousand different things. Uh, For so long, every guy in this room, we just operated on our own instincts, on our own wisdom, and what we thought we knew, and how smart we were, and, well, we wound up in a ditch somewhere. You are so gracious, and you are so kind, and you are so forgiving. We, uh, even after we become Christians, we tend to go our own way. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned each one to his own way. And instead of seeking you, We get this thing that we know best, and we don't. So tonight we come and we ask for your wisdom. James said, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all men generously. And without holding back. If we ask you, you give it to us, Lord. We we get wisdom from Scripture. We get wisdom from uh, others who are in our lives who walk with you. In an abundance of counselors, there's wisdom. He who walks with wise men, Proverbs 13 says, will be wise. So thank you that as some are more aware as they sit tonight of a need for wisdom than others just because of where they are in life. But if we need it, you'll give it to us. We don't have to wonder. And maybe you'll give it to us just before the decision has to be made. Oftentimes, uh, what we need doesn't come early. It doesn't come late. It comes just in time. And that is wisdom. It's financial provision, oftentimes. It's the right word at the right time. We walk into a meeting not sure what we're going to say. You said to your disciples, it shall be given to you in that hour what you shall say. Uh, Their lives are on the line. Our lives are usually not on the line, but we still need a right word in right circumstances. So tonight we're looking at your word. Give us wisdom. Give us teachable hearts. May we be not just hearers of the word, but doers. Challenge us tonight. Help us to grow. Help us to fight off fear and to trust you as we move ahead in the direction you've called us to go. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.
So I'd ask you to turn with me tonight to Ephesians chapter 6. We are, uh, we've been in Ephesians 6, 4 recently, but we're going to go back to it again tonight. Uh, we've been doing this uh, series uh, on landmines, and just as a quick summary, um, Ephesians um, 5 we're going to be in 6.4, but Ephesians 5, verse 15 says, Be careful how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. Uh, I don't think we need to have any debate whether or not our days are evil. They're extraordinarily evil. Uh, we're watching on a daily basis the foundations being destroyed. Is it... Uh, is it Psalm 11, 3, I think? If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Well, we just keep following the Lord. We just keep doing what's right. We just keep following the shepherd. But we are living in days where the foundations that have always been in place are collapsing on a daily basis. It was uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones I, I quote him often. He was uh, the pastor of uh, Westminster Chapel in, in London. I believe he died in uh, 1981, I believe, born in the 1890s in Wales. Uh, brilliant man, brilliant, off the charts. Could have been prime minister of Great Britain if he, if he so had have chosen that kind of path. Was a giant intellectually. Uh, had been a, a brilliant medical doctor, so brilliant that the physician to the queen and the physician to the prime minister chose him uh, as a protege. And uh, in his twenties, he was treating different members of the royal family, and he was in the. He would walk in into those castles and into those homes and into those people's lives who had everything. Uh, he saw the most powerful and prosperous and favored people on the face of the earth. And he saw how empty their lives were without Christ. And as the Lord was working in his life, he felt that he kept feeling this tug to preach. Well, <laughs> Hey, he was on his way in the medical field. He was on his way. But the Lord kept calling him, kept calling him. And at the age of 27, he left all of that to take a little tiny church in a coal mining town uh, in an obscure little village. And he was there for years. And then years later, G. Campbell Morgan heard him preach and invited him to come as his uh, successor at Westminster Chapel. He's quite a man. But I remember hearing him, and, and not hearing, I, I remember reading this where he made the statement. He, he said, yeah, when I was a boy growing up in Wales, it could be said that every man's home was his castle. And uh, every man um, could influence his home. Every man could teach his children. Every man could... Um, demonstrate to them the values of his life and what he believed uh, by how he lived them out and by teaching them with his own life 
and he could do so without fear of contradiction from outside sources. Because you see, it was, um, the, the home was the home. And the father and the mother who were following Christ, they were the primary, in, primary influencer, influencers. Because you see, when he was raised, uh, there, there, was, there was no radio. There was no media. There was no television. Uh, think about what propaganda comes through the walls of our home 24-7 to our kids and to our grandkids. That absolutely undercuts and undermines everything that we believe that is true and right and holy and good. Think of the deception. Think of the propaganda that comes in into the minds of the children and grandchildren for whom, for whom we are responsible. Uh, it's everywhere. It's absolutely everywhere, and it's in rebellion to the living God. It's where we are. I'm just here to encourage you. <laughs> but, you, you, I mean, you know it. So you see that statement in Ephesians 5, uh, 15, be careful how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. If you're a father, if you're a grandfather, uh, your leadership is critical. You're, you're having to deal with stuff that previous generations never had to deal with because things that were in place foundationally have been taken down in our days and in our time. And it's unimaginable what we're having to deal with. So we need the wisdom of God. Not only because there are landmines, be careful how you walk. If you're out in combat, be careful how you walk. Why? Because there are snipers, there are, there are, there are tripwires, there are landmines. Be careful how you walk. There's a war. You got an enemy. So we have to be careful, spiritually speaking, how we walk. And we not only have to be careful for ourselves, but for those whom we love and whom we care for and for whom we're responsible for. We talked a couple of weeks ago about the landmine. We're doing this series called Landmines. And a couple of weeks ago, I think, I, we talked about the landmine of moving the ancient boundaries of gender. Um, Genesis 1.27. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. That's been foundational. It's a creation ordinance. Uh, there are foundational principles. That the, the ancient boundaries were the boundaries that they used to mark off the land. Uh, when when uh, Joshua took the people in and they took the promised land and, uh, you know, they drove out the ites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Amorites, Termites, all the ites, anyway, and they, most of them, a lot of them still hung around. But then, but then the land was distributed to each of the tribes. And you can read in Joshua... Um, you can, you can read about the boundaries for the tribe of Issachar, the tribe of Manasseh, or the tribe of uh, uh, Judah, or the tri whatever the tribe. It would go into great detail. Here are the ancient boundaries. Don't move them. Don't mess around with them. There are not just boundaries for land. There are boundaries in every area of life that God has given. Uh, there are boundaries for gender. 
Male and female, he created them, period. That's never been under discussion ever in the history of the world. It's under discussion now. Marriage. If you go to Genesis 2, uh, for this cause a man shall leave, his father and mother shall cleave to his wife, the two shall become one flesh. Uh, marriage is man and woman. Oh, well, of course it is. I mean, that was always understood. It wasn't even up for discussion. I mean, they look like, what do you mean? Of course it's man and woman. What else would it be? Well, let me give you some options that are shocking and stunning and, but see, it's where we are. So you see, we're the men. We are the spiritual leaders of our homes and our families. So be careful how you walk. Not as unwise. All this unwise stuff, all this anti-God material is flying in through the, to the lives of our children and grandchildren right under our noses, through Wi-Fi that we pay for, through phones we pay for. So we better be wise. So we looked a couple weeks ago at the landmine of moving the ancient boundary of gender. Tonight, I want to talk about restoring the ancient boundary of gender. I want to talk about diffusing the landmine. I want to talk about uh, disconnecting the wires and restoring the ancient boundaries. Uh, how do you do that? Well, right off the top, let me just tell you this. If you're a husband and a, and a grandfather, you absolutely cannot be distant. You have to be engaged. That's it. On these deals, there's no retirement. You have to be engaged. You have to be at your post. You have to be aware. Because there is an enemy. Your adversary, the devil, goes about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour, and who he wants to devour. You know, it's interesting. If the enemy can't get a, a man, if he can't, get the wife, if he can't divide the marriage, he goes after the kids. He's relentless. It's just how he operates. So let's go to Ephesians 6, 4. In Ephesians 6, 4, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Uh, before, let me point out four things that I pointed out in a previous session. I won't spend much time on them. But uh, four things out of Ephesians 6, 4 that would uh, apply to fathers and grandfathers. Grandfathers aren't out of the picture scripturally. As long as you're breathing, you're, you're, part, of the, you're, you're part of the team. Uh, the, the father is the, the family pastor. If you're a grandpa, you're the, you're the pastor emeritus. And uh, you guys work together, you see? And you've got wisdom because you've got years and you've got miles on your tires that you don't have when you're 30. But you're not 30. You're uh, whatever you are. You can't remember what you are. <laughs> but you've got wisdom, and it's needed. So let me give you four things that are in Ephesians 6, 4 about fathers. Number one... Um, and can I say this to you? This, what's in this text is really the key to developing a biblical sexual identity. Um, 
it's, it's how we go about restoring the ancient boundary of gender when that very concept is under attack in a Christian home. Number one, fathers are to raise their children fairly, fairly. Uh, notice it says, fathers do not provoke your children to anger. When you are treated unfairly, does that not make you angry? Yeah. If uh, you're treated unfairly at work by a boss who has a favorite and has something in for you and you didn't get a promotion, everybody knows you should have gotten the promotion, but you didn't get it, doesn't that make you a little angry because you weren't treated fairly? That's exasperating. It's incredibly frustrating. Um, there's to be a sense of uh, um, justice, of rightness in a Christian home. Uh, fathers are not to exasperate. They're not to frustrate. Uh, now, sometimes, and kids have a warped idea of fairness. You know that and I know it. But we're talking about from a mature adult standpoint. You treat your children fairly. With, uh, it, it's equitable. And you have standards. And there are biblical standards. And you don't play favorites. You don't do this. You, you get it. You get what I'm saying here. And when it's fair, there's not resentment. Okay? When the playing field is the same for everybody, everybody's okay down in their hearts. So we're to raise our children fairly. Secondly, we are to raise, fathers are to raise their children firmly. If you see the phrase, uh, bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. There's firmness there. Uh, discipline and instruction. Uh, instruction is what is said to a child. Discipline is what is done to a child. Those two should go hand in hand. When you discipline a child, it's not out of anger. It's not out of rage. It's not, you know, it, it's calm, should be stable. And there are times, you know what, you're just exasperated and you kind of, it's just life. We're not perfect, guys. And if you get out of line, confess it to them and ask their forgiveness. Don't let that fester and go on without being dealt with. But the, the principle is this. We are to raise our children firmly in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So you, you're, you're, you're stable, you've got your feet on the ground, and you're going to have to discipline. And what you do is you tell them why they're being disciplined. Did we not talk about this? Have we not talked about this many times? You know you know how we operate in this family, and you violated, you violated that. See, you instruct them, and then you discipline them in a judicious way. Okay? See the balance there? So, it, fathers are to raise their children fairly. They raise their children firmly. Uh, fathers are to raise their children in the Lord. Fathers don't provoke your children in anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Because, you see, when a father is under the control of the Lord... When a father's under the control of the Holy Spirit and the word of Christ is richly dwelling within him, he's going to be a different kind of man than the guy down the street who's under the influence of Jack Daniels or Bud Light or whatever the heck he's under the influence of. You see? We're under the Lord. We'll give an account for our parenting to the Lord. So we raise our children in the Lord. Fourthly, fourthly, Fathers are to raise their children tenderly. If you see the phrase there, but bring them up 
bring them up. The idea there is nourish them carefully, nourish them tenderly, you see, because they're yours, because they're valuable, because they are, um, well, Lloyd-Jones used to say, he used to say, we are all so finely tuned. And we are, you know? Each child that you have is different from the other child. And you can push certain buttons with one that won't work with the other. They're different personalities. They have different temperaments. And you become a student of each child. Uh, we're, we're all finely tuned, you see. So we, we raise children tenderly. What, worth, what, what, what you have to do with a strong-willed child you don't need to do with a compliant child. Because if you're as hard on a compliant child who's teachable and, and you don't have to put the same pressure on a compliant kid and a teachable kid as you do on a kid with 12 layers of granite around his heart. Do you? So you got to deal with each one. Now, all these make sense. Um, you say, yeah, and what does this have to do with restoring the ancient boundary of gender? Well, there's a lot of confusion in our day. Uh, there's so much deception coming into our lives. It comes in through the school system. It comes in through the media. It comes in through, it comes in through some churches. It comes in through peers. It comes in through social media. Uh, The fact is, in our times, the homes of Christian fathers have been invaded with deception and propaganda concerning gender. And this is a huge wave that comes, it's a tsunami that comes in. And children are, they're just kids. They're new at life. They've only been living life five years or eight years or 10 or 12 or 13 or 15 years. See, they're just getting going in life. They're still figuring it out. Do you look, ever look back on high school and think about what an idiot you were? <laughs> do you? I mean, I do. I can't believe I did that. I can't believe I thought that. I can't believe, and then you, every, because, but, but you were young. You were inexperienced. You were an immature. This is why God gives children parents. Parents have got miles on their tires. Parents have been through high school. Parents have been through middle school. They know the ambushes. They know the traps. They know peer pressure. And the thing is, when you're a kid, you think your parents aren't cool. That just proves the point. They're a lot cooler than you think, and they know a lot more than you think. Uh, I've been uh, reading a book called The Parent's Guide to Preventing Homosexuality. Written by Joseph Nicolosi, Ph.D., and his wife, Linda Ames Nicolosi. Uh, 
Joseph Nicolosi is hated. All you got to do is look up his, any of his books on Amazon and uh, just read the reviews. They hate him. But he just keeps uh, going about his business, helping, uh, helping folks that have been through some uh, really turbulent things in their lives. And uh, I appreciate him, and I appreciate his courage. Um, he has a... Um, and, and here's what I'm going to do tonight. I'm, I'm kind of... I'm going to spend most of my time... In fact, I'm pretty much going to spend my time on boys. Uh, it's not that girls aren't important, because they are. We did a session a while back in this series on, on, on raising boys and girls. Uh, but boys are, boys are under attack. In fact, um, I'm going to start with James Dobson and his book, Bringing Up Boys. He, uh, Dobson has a chapter called Wounded Spirits. Wounded spirits. You know, the thing about being a parent, you can wound your child and not even know it. Uh, you were probably wounded by one of your parents, if not both. And possibly they didn't even know they did it. Now, sometimes parents, we know because it's abusive and it's just completely out of line, but. It is possible to wound a child and not even know you're wounding them because of different factors. In this chapter called Wounded Spirits, Dobson says, some of my readers may be wondering at this point, why only boys in this book? Why not also consider the needs of girls? Later he followed it up, I believe, with a book on girls. The answer is that boys, even more than girls, are in serious trouble today. We have been hearing for three decades about girls being discriminated against, sexually harassed, disrespected, and given short shrift in school. And there is some validity to those assertions and steps are being taken to address them. But a chorus of social scientists is warning now of a crisis among males like nothing we have ever seen before. While many kids are coping adequately, a sizable minority is struggling with perplexing social issues and forces that yesterday's kids did not have to face. For some, just trying to survive emotionally can best be described as overwhelming. Let's look at the findings that have led us to conclude that many males are floundering today, and the vast majority of them are being negatively influenced by the culture. And you have sons? Or you say, no, I don't have a son. You got a son-in-law? Uh, when did he write this book? He wrote this book 2001. Okay? So if you got a son-in-law, he'd probably fit into this category. You got a grandson? Okay. Boys, when compared to girls, are six times more likely to have learning disabilities three times more likely to be registered drug addicts, and four times more likely to be diagnosed as emotionally disturbed. They are at greater risk for schizophrenia, autism, sexual addiction, alcoholism, bedwetting, and all forms of antisocial and criminal behavior. 
They are 12 times more likely to murder someone, and their rate of death in car accidents is greater by 50%. 77% of delinquency-related court cases involve males. There is more. Boys younger than 15 years of age are twice as likely to be admitted to psychiatric hospitals and five times more likely than girls to kill themselves. Fully 80% of suicides involve males under 25 years of age. Uh, and then he quotes Dr. Michael Gurian, who wrote a book called The Wonder of Boys. Uh, Gurian said that masculine confusion and discontent are especially evident in public education. From elementary grades through high school, boys receive lower grades than girls. Uh, eighth grade boys are held back 50% more often than girls. By high school, boys account for two-thirds of the students in special ed classes. Fewer boys now attend and graduate from college. 59% of all master's degree candidates are now women. I have a, what is he? He married my niece. What does that make him? He's an alien. Uh, he's an outsider. He's a pretty good guy. He's my nephew-in-law. I don't know what he is, but he's a good guy. And he's in a master's program in counseling, and he's the only male in there. Remarkable. 59% of all master's degrees candidates are now women, and the percentage of men in graduate-level professional education is shrinking each year. When eighth-grade students are asked about their futures, girls are now twice as likely as boys to say they want to pursue a career in management, their professions, or business. We talked last week about every family needs two things, provision and care. God's called the man to be the primary provider. God's called women to be the primary caregivers. No one would have flinched at that 30 years ago. They flinch now. Uh, boys experience more, difficult, more difficulty adjusting to school are up to 10 times more likely to suffer from hyperactivity than girls and account for 71% of all school suspensions. I have a theory, just out of my own life, and out of my, watching my boys in school, I think schools are designed for girls Amen. and not for boys. Uh, I would get notes. We've done everything. You know, my, my, my kids are all adults now, but we did everything. What, yeah, kids, what would you do for your school for your, 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 your kids, Steve? We did everything. I mean, uh, we had them in a public school in kind of a rural area, and it was pretty much a Christian deal, but everybody there was pretty much Christian. It was safe, public school. We did that for a while. We had them in Christian school. Uh, at certain times, we homeschooled one of them just because he needed some extra help. Uh, I think one year they were illiterate. I can't remember. Uh, we, we just did different. We just kind of looked at each year, and what do we need to do here? And we look at each kid, and what do they need? Um, sometimes I get notes from teachers. If I get a note that said uh, Josh was disrespectful, I would deal with that because you're not disrespectful to teachers. If I get a note that said, would say John was uh, disobedient, I'd deal with that. I'd handle that. That's important. You're not disobedient to teachers, to those in authority. But I can remember getting a note. Uh, I'd like to have a meeting with you. Uh, Josh won't sit still in class. And I'm thinking, so? And then we'd have a conversation. You know, I remember talking to some teachers and administrators. 
But he just wants to sit still in class. I said, he's a little boy. Why'd you guys cut back recess? Well, we've got these tests. We've got to get these test scores. And all that. He's a little boy. You can't, you, can't, you can't have a nine-year-old boy sitting there for that long and expect him to pay attention. I can't sit there that long and pay attention. I can't do it. He's a little boy. Little boys are different than girls. Little boys have massive amount of testosterone flowing through their bodies. They can't help it. Now, I'm not saying it's a license to be irresponsible, but I'm saying you have to have realistic expectations. Little boys are supposed to go out and play. Little boys are supposed to climb up a 30-foot oak tree and jump. <laughs> little boys are crazy. But little girls don't do that. Little girls can sit for nine hours and not breathe. And I'm making generalizations here, but I'm not far off the mark. Well, we've got to do something. Well, yeah, I mean, we're going to have to do something. Well, let's drug them. Now, they didn't say it. That wasn't the language they used. They used other language. But you see, let's do something to take away from his maleness and make him more feminine. Because we got to get these guys under control. That may not be the best solution. And it's not. That's why sometimes you pull them out and you homeschool. That's why we put Josh in a school where he was homeschooled three and was in class two days and it was just half days. And we were thankful for that school. He wound up going back and being a teacher at that school. And he still couldn't sit still. <laughs> little humor there, little educational humor. Uh, speaking of boys, uh, Dobson says, uh, we're seeing an inner rage that almost defies explanation. It's true. Clearly something has terribly gone wrong in our day. How can we explain this cauldron of emotions that simmers within many boys? And who can possibly anticipate what it portends for the men they will become? And what accounts for the rising number of male adolescents who simply aren't making it in today's world? Now more than ever, boys are experiencing a crisis of confidence that reaches deep within their souls. Many of them are growing up believing they are unloved by their parents and or are hated or disrespected by their peers. This results in a form of self-loathing that often serves as a prelude to violence, drug abuse, promiscuity, and suicide. It helps explain why both boys and girls do things that would otherwise make no sense, such as cutting their flesh, piercing sensitive body parts, tattooing themselves from head to toe, taking dangerous drugs, and or identifying themselves with death, perversion, and satanic ritual. For some, the wounded spirit syndrome begins very early as a consequence of abuse and neglect by their parents. Uh, others deal with other issues. He goes on and says, many parents, watch this, many parents are simply too busy and distracted or too immature with selfish and selfish to meet the pressing needs of babies and toddlers. 
Divorce, when it occurs, diverts the attention, the attention of adults away from children and focuses it on their own painful circumstances. This disengagement of parents in our fast-paced and dizzying world will show up repeatedly in our discussion of boys. It is the underlying problem plaguing children today. Now, earlier, earlier I made the statement that if we're going to walk wisely and not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of our time because the days are evil, as men, as fathers, as grandpas, we cannot be distant. We have to be engaged. We got to have our antenna and our radar circling. That's our job. Let's, let's, let's talk about um, gender. Let's talk about homosexuality. In Nicolosi's book, in chapter one, he has a chapter called Masculinity is an Achievement. And then he has a quote from Camille Paglia. She is a lesbian activist, but she is, uh, I'll read her articles now and then. She, she is somewhat fearless and not afraid to go against the party line interesting uh, woman with an interesting perspective. She wrote these words. A woman is, but a man must become. Masculinity is risky and elusive. It is achieved by a, re by a revolt from a woman and is confirmed only by other men. Now that could be greatly misunderstood but there's some great truth in it. Um, we'll touch on that in just a little bit. Nicolosi, um, you know, the thing that always comes up in our culture right now, because whenever you talk about homosexuality, and, and, and by the way, I, I, I'll forget this if I don't say it now, we're going to talk about boys and, and homosexuality. He has a chapter in here uh, that's called From Tomboy to Lesbian in Chapter 7. By the way, the book is A Parent's Guide to Preventing Homosexuality. Joseph Nicolosi, N-I-C-O-L-O-S-I. And did I say that he's hated and the book is hated? But it's so well done. And in that chapter on girls... Uh, it's the best thing I've ever read on that subject, hands down. Talks about the fact that oftentimes girls will be tomboys, but it's a phase they pass through. But then he gives warning traits to look for. Um, and um, this is affecting more and more Christian families. Um, and we all have blind spots. And we've all made mistakes, and things happen, and we don't catch them, or we're not aware of them, or whatever. But uh, it's, very, it's, it's a book full of grace. And it's designed not just for parents with children at home, but perhaps if you have uh, an adult child who is involved with this and struggling with it, and 
Anyway, I, 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 I recommend it highly. Um, the question always comes up is, and, and here's what it's taught in our day, is that um, there's no choice. There is a gay gene. Uh, as, as Christian fathers and grandfathers, as Christian men, we, we face the propaganda of the medical and psychological community uh, and the deception of the gay lobby and a media that's in collusion. Um, he has some quotes in here from the American Psychological Association, which has many uh, gay activists in leadership positions. By the way, if you ever read the history of the American Psychological Association and when they changed their, their view on homosexuality, uh, there was a tremendous amount of intimidation in their meetings, a tremendous amount. I talked with a gentleman recently who uh, was telling me he served on a school board 25, 30 years ago, and a large check was given to the school district because an issue was coming up by a, um, uh, a gay rights group, large check, thousands. And, um, and he opposed it, and he said publicly in the meeting, I think they're trying to influence us, and I think they're trying to, you know, he just said what he believed to be true. And he said, I was astonished at how many hundreds of calls and letters and packages, and he said, I was astonished at, at, at what came my way. And then we had the next meeting, we had to move it to a bigger auditorium, and uh, you could speak for one minute, and the vitriol was unbelievable. And, oh, by the way, the board had rejected, they followed his lead and said, we're going to reject this money. But at the next meeting, they took it, and he was the only dissenter. That was 25 or 30 years ago. Uh, the American Psychological Association, which has many gay activists in leadership, gives some credence to the born that way theory, but then it adds that many scientists share the view that sexual orientation is shaped for most people at an early age through complex interactions of biological, psychological, and social factors. Simon LeVay, who is known as the gay brain researcher, says at this point, the most widely held opinion on the causation of homosexual, homosexuality is that multiple factors play a role. Um, sociologist Stephen Goldberg says, I know of no one in the field who argues that homosexuality, homosexuality can be explained without reference to environmental factors. Um, one question remains oddly unaddressed. Nicolosi says, if the researchers themselves admit no one is born gay, then why is the American Psychological Association not interested in studying the family and social influences that lead to a homosexual identity? I believe the answer is clear. Gay activists in the association do not want them to. And then um, the uh, psychiatrist Jeffrey Satinover says that we should not be looking for a gay gene that makes people homosexual, because none exists. When, when you look at the research, nothing has ever proven that there is a gay gene. 
Um, Satinover goes on, the answer to the question of inevitability, according to Satinover, is no, no one is born gay. There is no evidence demonstrating that homosexuality is gen genetically or prenatal hormonally set in stone simply because that child has gender atypical interest. In fact, none of the research claims that homosexuality is mandated by biology. Only the press and certain researchers do when speaking in sound bites to the public. He then speaks of uh, Greg Luganis. You may remember him, the Olympic diver. That's unbelievable. Uh, from Nicolosi, the social and family factors leading to homosexuality are amply illustrated in Olympic diver Greg Luganis's autobiography. Uh, in spite of the obvious, obviously, uh, obvious predisposing factors in his background, the media followed passively along with the born that way assumption. His heartbreaking biography was widely publicized in, 2020, in a 2020 television interview in 1995 with Walter, Barbara Walters. Luganis described his abusive relationship with the father who adopted him when he was an infant. As Luganis' mother lamented, he, the father, had nothing to do with Greg until Greg took first place in diving. Now remember what we said about a distant father, okay? He never played with him, he never took him any place, and he wasn't a role model for my son. Then in a People magazine interview, Luganis described a particularly painful memory. One day his father struck him with a belt to make him practice a dive he had been reluctant to do in the freezing weather. Luganis says, he hit me across my backside and legs until it burned, that I can't forget. He made me do four or five back one and a half pikes. To punish him, I would land flat trying to hurt myself. The best way to deal with my father was to steer clear. Luganis did not get support from his boyhood peers. He was labeled nigger for his Samoan complexion, and he was teased for being a sissy and because of his stuttering. He didn't get accepted, and still he started winning competitions. Uh, think about Ephesians 6.4 and his father. Now, is this the case with every young boy that struggles with homosexuality? That's an extreme situation. And the answer is no. No. However, I found this interesting in Nicolosi's book. He talks about the classic triadic relationship. T-R-I-A-D-I-C. And he's very gracious here. He said, it is painful for parents to hear from their counselor that one of them might be an over-involved mother or a distant father. While reading the following descriptions of parental personalities, you should remember first that we all make mistakes as parents. He gives, he gives a lot of grace here and talks about the fact that when this is realized, it can be approached, it can be uh, dealt with, it can be healed. You see, we, hey, as dads, have, not, have, have we not all blown it in different You know, I blew it so big time with my son John for about three years because I got too busy. And we had always had a great relationship. And I mean, I, I look back and I can't believe how stupid I was and that stuff got under the radar in my life that I was out teaching about. So every, every dad screws up. The issue is what do you do with it when you realize you screwed up? 
He says, repeatedly researchers have found the classic triadic, which means three-way relationship in the family backgrounds of homosexual men. In this situation, the mother often has a poor or limited relationship with her husband, so she shifts her emotional needs to her sons. This is why marriage, Christian marriage, is important. Because if the husband's not meeting her needs, you go to the boy. The father is usually non-expressive and detached and often is critical as well. So in the triadic family pattern, we have the detached father, the over-involved mother, and the temp, temp, temporum, here, I, I'm having another word freeze. The temperamentally sensitive, emotionally attuned boy who fills in for the father where the father falls short. The close emotional bond is between mother and son. She feels bad for her son. I'm his only safe haven. Everyone else makes fun of him. His peers reject him. His father seems to have forgotten him. So I am the only one who understands and accepts him exactly as he is. The last is the killer phrase, exactly as he is. Uh, it is if who the boy is could include his androgynous fantasies, fear of other males, rejection of his own body, and discomfort with his masculine nature. Uh, a lot of times, and you'll see this in, in families, where um, one boy is different than his brothers in terms, you know, most of them, the, the brothers play ball and do stuff and hunt and fish, but you have a boy, another boy, who's not a hunter, not a fisherman, really not an athlete, uh, might even be smaller in stature, might be, have an interest in other things, all that. And sometimes, see, it's easy to connect with a son who's into the stuff you're into. That's easy. Any guy can do that. But when you got a son who's wired a little differently and who di different, and by the way, how do we get our hard wiring? Well, read Psalm 139. The Lord, the, the Lord puts this together in the womb. I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. You know, that's why each kid comes out of the womb different. The challenge is not dealing with a son who functions like you do. The challenge is functioning with a son who has different interests than you do. That's the challenge, you see? And it's not easy, but it needs to be done. Um, Now, I, I really hesitated to get into this tonight. And the reason I hesitated to get into it is because uh, there's so much, when you make certain statements, they could be misconstrued, they could be extremely painful, they could raise other questions, they could, it's just, it's huge, it's huge. Uh, I think what is clear tonight is the importance of fathers. That is clear. There is something I, I want to read here. Uh, Andrew Sullivan is a no, noted gay activist and writer. Uh, he describes his boyhood. Uh, he, he reports, uh, Sullivan reports a childhood pattern that fits the triadic model. His closest friends in school were girls who were sometimes soulmates. 
with whom he had countless endless conversations. And like many gay men, he became interested in acting in the theater. He describes a classic over-involved mother and uninterested father. I had a very close relationship with my mother and somewhat distant one with my father. His father was undemonstrative, while it was his mother who, as he said, filled my head with the possibilities of the world, who conversed with me as an adult, who helped me believe in my ability to do things in a wider world. It was her values that shaped and encouraged me. In my adolescence, I warred with my father and sided with my mother in the family fights. And in all of this, I suppose, I followed the typical pattern of homosexual development. Now, there are other factors. Uh, oftentimes, when you talk with guys in homosexuality, they were picked off by an older man and sexually abused. That's very normal. That's what happens. I found it interesting that Sandusky, who, the coach at Penn State, abused all these boys sexually. He adopted a son. His son was just put up on charges. The same ones. It's hard to believe that Sandusky wasn't sexually abusing other boys and not abusing his own adopted son. Um, so guys, we're, we're living in evil times. So what do we do? We've got to get connected and we've got to stay connected. And we need God's wisdom to help us. And where we have fallen short, I remember, I remember going to my son John and having to confess my sin to him. That, you know what, John? I got diverted. And I thought we were in good shape, but we weren't. And some things happened under the radar that I didn't even know about because I was so busy. I had to apologize from my heart of hearts, and I did it with tears. Uh, I've had to talk with my other son, Josh, because I wounded him. I didn't even know I wounded him. But see, when it comes to the surface, what do we do? We're all broken. We're all messed up. We deal with it. We talk about it. We confess our sin one to another and, and, and pray for one another, and you'll be healed. God can heal families. Malachi 6.4, or if you're Italian, Malachi 6.4. <laughs> Malachi 6.4. Last verse of the Old Testament. And he, when he comes, will restore the hearts of the fathers to the children and the children to the fathers, lest I come and spike the lamb with a curse. What we read in Dobson's book on boys and the dilemma that boys are in, that's a curse. And I want to say this to you. 90% of what boys are dealing with, if you take that down, if you take that down and reduce it like you reduce a fraction to its lowest common denominator, that's fatherlessness. That's what that is. There's fatherlessness. There's distance. There's not connection. So what is our job? Our job is to get connected and to stay connected. Uh, so I want to give you some, as we finish up, I want to give you some principles on staying connected, all right, and being a leader and being a man in this area. But let's say this first of all. And, and just write them down as you think they're numbered. How's that? That's too confusing, isn't it? <laughs> so let me, let, all right, let me give you the first one. A father is a leader and leaders lead. If you see something amiss, deal with it. And under that, don't be passive. Engage. 
Here's number two. Connect emotionally with their hearts. With their hearts. What I, I want to say something here about effeminacy. When, when boys start to display effeminacy and boys start to display, you know, more of wanting to be with girls, more playing with dolls than other things that are, we would say are masculine. See, the culture says, oh, well, that's just, uh, oh, that's, you know, those are, those are just cultural things. That, that, that doesn't matter. It does matter. It does matter. If a little boy is acting feminine, something's wrong. And if that's in your family, you need to get involved. That's your job. Uh, if there is a boy who's effeminate, if you have someone in your family, a woman who is dressing a boy as a girl pretty fairly often, you need to talk to him. And if you get some resistance, you might get my friend Walt Heyer's book, who was one of the first guys to get the transsexual surgery and read his life story because that's what his mom and his grandma did and his dad was distant and abusive. And now he has a ministry. He's been through the trauma. And now he has a ministry to those who are in the trauma. Tremendous rate of suicide among those dear people. You see? You just can't stand back. Well, they might get upset with me. Yeah, they might. But ask God to give you wisdom. Like apples of gold and setting of silver is a, is a word spoken in right circumstances. You don't want to just charge in there like a bull. You want the wisdom of God and the timing of God. But something has to be said. What is required for evil to flourish in the world is for good men to do nothing. Don't be passive. And, and connect with them emotionally. Depending on the age of the child, connect with them. So you get a kid who doesn't like sports. That's no crime. And tell him, actually, that's pretty smart. Because you know what? Sports is a game. Yeah, are you interested in science? Are you interested in math? Great. Sports is a game. It can be fun, but it's not fun for everybody. And very, very few guys make it to the top. Very few guys. And if you play football, and if you play any contact sport, I mean, you're pretty much shot. I mean, you're worthless from the age of 30 on. You know? I, I mean, look for ways. Don't, don't put them down. God gave them interest. Encourage them in their interest. You, you guys get what I'm saying? Uh, they like to cook. You know, we, we, uh, we have a joke around every Thanksgiving now that my dad's with the Lord. You know what? We all miss my dad on Thanksgiving. My dad was a man's man. My dad hunted. My dad fished. My dad was a phenomenal athlete. He, was, he didn't broadcast that, but he was. Uh, he was a man's man. And I'm going to tell you something. My dad could cook. And on Thanksgiving, my dad made the turkey, and my dad made the oyster dressing, and I've never seen anybody top it. He could have been on the food channel. We got men in our family who cook. I'm not one of them. But we've got them. Uh, I've, got a, I've got a nephew who is masculine, worked as a bouncer in a bar. And he cooks. He loves to cook. 
They had their family Thanksgiving, and you know what he did? He went and got a grass-fed lamb, got a spit, made the pit. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Well, he wants to cook. Great. Let him feed you. <laughs> Let him be who he is. Encourage him. You see? And then tell him, and also, and listen, at this right point, say, hey, listen, you're going to hear some stuff. You're going to say that, hear that all great cooks are in the homosexual world. That's not true. What if he likes art? That's great that you like art. Man, can you ever draw? You want to paint? Yeah, you're going to hear that all the great artists were homosexual. That's not true. Tell him that. Uh, know that it's going to come. Head it off at the pass. You tell him first. That would go with number three. I just went ahead and did it, which is uh, help them identify their strengths. Every child has God-given strengths. It's the job of a father. It's the job of a grandfather. Help your kids identify their strengths. They all come out of the womb. I didn't do well in school. I was terrible in school. I had horrible grades in school because I, I was so bored. But I would read five to six. I'd go to the library on Saturday and check out five or six or seven sports biographies and have them all read by Tuesday when I was eight, nine years old. That's just how I was wired. I couldn't do math to save my life. I'm 19 years old. All right, Steve, let's do this again. One, two. Here are your flashcards, Steve. I, 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 don't, have, I, don't, I don't have the math gene. But I was wired to read. And so what do I do? I got a book, and I get up in the morning, and I'm surrounded by books 12 feet high. That's what I do, and I've wanted to do it since I was a little boy. And my dad, actually, we were taking a, a trip to the Continental Divide. He was going to take me and my brothers, and I didn't go. You know why? I wanted to read. And my dad let me do it, and he didn't put me down for it. He said, that's fine, Steve. I wanted to play ball, just how I was wired. And he had enough sense. I'm different than Mike and Jeff when it comes to hunting and fishing. I'm, he didn't bask me over the coals for that. And he realized I had certain strengths and I didn't have others. And he'd say, that's all right. You don't have everything. It's okay. No big deal. And he said, hey, Steve, you know what? You'll do well in school and you find what you love. And that's what happened. I was lousy in school. The only reason I got into college out of high school because they had to take you in California <laughs> in a junior college. That's the only reason I got in. They had to accept me because somehow I'd faked them out and got a diploma. And then I had to, to get my degree when I graduated in speech. I had to get three A's my last semester to get a 2.0 because I was such a terrible student. And then, because I thought, I'm never going anywhere. I'm never going to graduate school. And then I wound up going to seminary. And I sent an app to Dallas, said, Dallas Seminary. I'm sure they were passed around the faculty lounge saying, look at this idiot. <laughs> but suddenly I was interested, and suddenly I did OK. Connect them to role models. Uh, 
yeah, Grandpa, I'm not, I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sick all the time, and I got asthma, and I all this, and I'm really not, I'm not a big guy like, you know, these other guys. I'm not really an athlete. Oh, you're like Teddy Roosevelt. Really? Yeah, you know, in North Dakota, South Dakota, those four presidents, he's up there. He's one of the greatest presidents. Yeah, he was real sick when he was a kid. Really? Yeah, I'm going to get you a little book on Teddy Roosevelt. He could hardly breathe. He could hardly walk down the stairs. But he did some things. And then he started reading, and then he'd kind of, he'd work out a little bit in the gym, but he, he was way behind the other kids, but he became such a great man and such a brave man and such a great leader. You see? That's all right. A lot of guys don't have great health. See, that's your job is to fill their little emotional tanks. See? That's your job. That's my job. And paint a vision for them. That's okay. Everybody's got stuff. Uh, okay, so I'm just going to lay this out. Teach them how to fight. Here's the next one. And teach them when to fight. Oh, Steve Jesus said, turn the other cheek. Oh, I can't believe you're saying that. Teach them to fight. He wasn't talking about boys in grammar school. He wasn't talking about boys in middle school on a playground or in high school. So we, we've got everybody over Easter afternoon, and you know, I've got my little grandsons running around, and I got two of them that are jumping Neanderthals. I mean, they're going to be big boys. And then I got another one, and he's, a, he's small, he's quick, he's fast, he's a great athlete. He'd be a great base stealer. Sucker is quick, he'd be a great gymnast. But he's small. And you know what? Someone's going to try and bully that kid. You've got to teach him how to fight. I'm gonna, and I know this from personal experience. You're not going to believe this, but as a little boy, as a little boy, my mother had to make me go next door and fight the little boy next door. <laughs> no, I'm dead serious. I remember his name. I remember that, his name because I hate that kid. He, he would hit me in the face, and I'd go home and tell my mom, and she'd say, Stephen, you have to go hit him in the face. And my mom's a godly woman in the scriptures. People would be horrified at that. But see, she knew I needed to grow up to be a man. I was going to have a family. Uh, to be a Christian man, you have to fight the good fight. Well, before you ever fight the good fight, you have to learn how to fight on the playground to defend yourself. Because if you never learn to stand up for what's right, how are you ever going to fight a good fight or have any moral courage or anyone? I could not, she could not let me let that kid pound me, and I didn't want to fight him because I didn't want to hurt him. She made me go next door and say, you hit him in the face, and I did, and I felt terrible about it. And then later, the kid on the other side, the kid across the street, I forgot about this until this afternoon, the kid on the other side of the street, two years later, he hit me in the face, same thing, and you go over and hit that boy in the face. And I didn't feel as guilty that time. <laughs> and then when we moved to a new school district, and I was in seventh grade, and the biggest guy in the school, I mean, this guy's name was Goliath, and he got on my case, and he terrorized me. I remember my dad said, you know what, Steve? finally my dad said, Steve, this is going to stop. 
you're going to have to fight this guy. I don't want dead. I'm not dead. I'm telling you, this guy's going to kill me. There's no way. He said, I'm telling you, I'm going to tell you how to take him. And here's what I want you to do. This always happens out there at PE class when you're on those numbers doing a roll call, right? And he stands next to you. And he would always call me this name. He said, here's what you're going to do today. When he's next to you and he calls you that name, here's what I want you to do. I want you to turn and not say a word, and I want you to come up and uppercut that sucker and hit him right here with everything you got. And then I want you to jump on him and pound him. <laughs> and the thing is, Steve, the coach is right there taking a roll call, right? And I said, yeah. He said, he'll stop it. And he'll never bother you again. And that's exactly what happened. And then my dad prayed with me before I went to school. <laughs> and I'm thankful for a dad like that, who was an elder in the church and all. My dad loved Christ. He loved the Word of God. But he knew he had to turn me into a man. Yeah. Did he bail you out? <laughs> Did what? Did he bail you out? Did my dad bail me out? No, I murdered the guy and went to San Quentin. Uh, no, I was terrified. But you see, my dad knew this is what has to be taught this young boy who doesn't want to hurt anybody. And then I saw it in my oldest son, the same fear, the same wanting to get along. And now he's a firefighter, he runs into burning buildings, and he's crazy. But you have to learn to overcome fear and be a man. Now, you teach him how to fight, you teach them when to fight, because there's a time not to fight. But if you have to defend the weak or a special needs kid, you do it. That's what men do. You protect the weak. If it's a bullying situation, you get involved. And if it's more than one and there's a school, I don't know what it is, but you don't let that go on and let that boy be terrorized. Sometimes they run in packs like wolves, as Dobson says. You get involved, if it has to be a parent, a teacher, whatever, and if it's not resolved, get them out of there and do something else because you've got to protect them. Okay? Whatever the next number is, model masculine commitments to your wife. So John's 13, we're going up to Montana on a fly fishing trip down this river for two nights and a guide and the whole thing. We get up there, walk in, and uh, talk to the guy behind the counter. Yeah, here we are. Okay, great. He said, yeah, Linda's about ready to go. She'll be right with you. I said, Linda? He said, yeah, she's going to be your guide. Linda Woodchuck or whatever she was. I said, you got a woman guide and we're going to be going down for two nights and three days? He said, yeah. I said, I can't do that. He said, what do you mean you can't do that? I said, I don't do overnighters with women I'm not married to. And John's standing there. He said, well, we had an agreement. I said, we had an agreement, but I never, you never told me, woman guide. And we had to work that thing out, but I wouldn't do it. And John said, I turned to him, and he's, he's, he said, well, let me get the paperwork. And so I turned to John. I said, hey, John, you know, you know when we do those men's conferences, and I talk about being a one-woman kind of man? He said, yeah. I said, this is one woman kind of man stuff. We don't do this. This is not right. We don't even give the appearance of evil. He said, well, Dad, what are we going to do? I said, I don't have a clue. But I bet you won't figure it out, huh? He said, yeah, I'm good with that. I said, okay. And we worked it out. We found the guy the next day, did a one-day trip and down the Flathead River, and that was great. And then the next day, we did 
some lake and, I don't know, killed a polar bear. I don't know what we did. It all worked out. But I wasn't doing that. And I said, this is about your mom. We don't violate these commitments, ever, even if it costs you something, and it cost me some money. Here's the next one. Maintain veto power over their friends. Maintain veto power over their friends. Bad company, 1 Corinthians 15 says, corrupts good morals. Kids are not smart enough to pick the right friends. I made some errors along the way with John. I didn't make them with Josh. One night at 2 a.m., I got a call. Police officer, I got your son, Josh. And da, da, da. I said, no, you don't have Josh, you have John. Because John was going through a rebellion. He goes, no, it's Josh. I said, no. I said, hold on. I went upstairs. Josh wasn't in his room. And he had a friend stay the night. And they'd gone through the window. And I said, can you give me 20 minutes and I'll be right there? He said, yeah. And there was some party and some kid threw marijuana and cops saw him and Anyway, nobody would fess up. I got up there, I'm talking to the cop. The guy, was, I, that this cop was great. He was a leader. And we got these three boys, and they got their heads down. And so who had the stuff? Nobody would say anything. Nobody would say anything. And I'm looking at the, the cop. He caught my eye, and I said, well, I'd just go ahead and take all three of them to jail. I was trying to get their attention. And then one of the boys said, I did it. And I said, all right, I'll take Josh and his friend, if it's all right with you, officer. I'll take him back to his home, and I'll take Josh home. He said, that's fine. So now it's about 3.30 in the morning. We go to the boy's house, knock on the door, wake up his mom, and his dad didn't want to come down. I said, you need to get your husband, please. The guy didn't even want to come down. And he was resentful, and he was angry that I woke him up. And I said, here's what's happened. And, I, and they've been hanging out a lot. And I said, I want you, and here's the deal. This friendship is over. Over. Josh will not be here, and your son is not welcome at our house. And this is over. They're not good for each other. Josh and I walked out. And Josh had never done anything like this before. He got in the car and he looked at me and he said, Dad, I knew when I went out that window I was going to get caught. I said, well, you did. I said, Josh, that boy's trouble. And you were trouble going with him and listening to him. And tragically, three years later, there was a funeral for that boy who was in a lot of trouble and going real fast. And I don't know what the circumstances were, but he hit a tree and it killed him instantly. And that relationship had been cut. Kids are not smart enough to pick their own friends. And they'll say, Dad, you're so strict, you're so this, you're so this. You know what? They don't know how to walk wisely. That's why they need you.
Have we not all made a lot of mistakes? But you see, Jesus is a savior. And he's a restorer of homes and families and hearts. There's one perfect father, and it's not us. But through Jesus, he's made it possible for our relationships to be healed. Let's pray. So, Father, we come to you. Help us apply these principles, Lord, in our day of mass confusion and rebellion against you. Give us wisdom, not to be reactionary, not to be over the top, just to be men under the control of your spirit. Lord, uh, just lead us uh, to do the next right thing, whatever that would be. For each guy, it's different as we've looked into the scriptures. What's the next right thing that needs attention in our home, maybe revolving around this? What might it be? Show it to us. Give us the courage, Lord. It may frighten us to take the step, but you'll go with us. You'll help us. Yes, you will. You'll never leave us or forsake us. The eye of the Lord roams to and fro about the earth, looking for those whose hearts are fully his, that he may strongly support them. Support us. Help us. We're weak. We need your wisdom. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen.